Hello, listeners. Today we have a very special guest, Richard Heinberg, who is Senior Fellow at the Post Carbon Institute. Richard's book, End of Growth, is probably one of the top five most important books of the 21st century. It's a confronting book that I spent three months doing additional reading about to try and disprove it because it puts together all the issues about energy and resources we're going to face in the 21st century in a connected way that is really, really disconcerting. Now, do not despair, because the point of understanding things is if you understand them, you can do something about them. So even if this conversation is a bit doom and gloom, with understanding comes the ability to fix it. So here we go. I'm here today with a very special guest, Richard Heinberg. How are you, Richard? I'm doing well. Great to be talking with you. Well, thank you for joining us. We're also here with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well. I have a coffee in a pink cup, so all is good. <laughs> so I'm a little bit apprehensive about the conversation today. I'm just scared that I am going to feel a bit gloomy. I'm going to feel a bit <laughs> sad. <laughs> Sad when we finish. Look, but. Richard's a violinist. I'm an ex-violinist. Worst comes to worst, we can both get violins and play too. <laughs> oh. It'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. We can fix this. Music fixes everything. Well, that's true. It's a good start. <laughs> it's a good way to get your brain in the right place to start mm. fixing yeah, things. Yeah, it certainly is. Now, Richard, would you like to start with introducing about how you got into what you do, how you got to be Senior Fellow at Post Carbon Institute, how you started going, oh dear, resources are going to be a big scary problem. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, I, I want to give you the short version because that can take a while. Um, I grew up in the uh, 1960s and 70s, and when I was a 21-year-old college student in uh, at the University of Iowa back in 1971-72, I read a book that changed my life, and that book was The Limits to Growth. Uh, it was a group of scientists at MIT who had used a computer to model the possible scenarios for the interaction between some basic variables about the human system, uh, food production, population, resource depletion, pollution, stuff like that. And the sort of standard run scenario that kept popping out of the computer was very worrisome because what it showed was a peak in decline in uh, world industrial output early in the 21st century, followed by decline in population. So they wrote this up in, in the book, The Limits to Growth, and it was extremely controversial. It became the uh, biggest selling environmental book of all time. Uh, I think it still is. And very quickly, uh, some standard economists uh, wrote op-ed pieces in the New York Times and Boston Globe and important newspapers like that saying, oh, posh, this this is impossible. Of course, we, we can have growth forever. They, these people must have made some mistakes. But in fact, the team that worked on that initial study has has continued. Uh, a couple of them are no longer with us, but they've continued to analyze the data as it as it develops. Of course, they've improved their their software, and of course, we have much more sophisticated computers these days. And basically, the same scenarios keep popping out. So anyway, I, I, like I said, I was 21 years old at the time, and that really got my attention. I realized that uh, for the remainder of my lifetime, I would be living in a world that was fundamentally unsustainable, a human world uh, with systems that were fundamentally unsustainable, our energy system, our agricultural system, and, and more, our manufacturing system. So that colored uh, how I thought about life from that point on, and I decided to devote my life to trying to understand how we got into this precarious situation and what to do about it. I ended up uh, teaching one of the first sustainability programs in a small uh, small private college in uh, in California back in the 1990s, 
and uh, and then I became a senior fellow at Post Carbon Institute. Um, I should mention back in the in the late nineties, um, I I finally realized that energy was sort of the key to understanding this whole thing. Um, energy is what enables us to do everything we do as human beings. Actually, it's key to understanding ecosystems as well. If you want to understand an ecosystem, follow the energy. Same thing with the human society. And over the last couple of hundred years, especially the last century, humanity has had access to energy of a quality and quantity uh, previously unimaginable. And of course, that's fossil fuels. And it's fossil fuels that have pushed us on this unsustainable course. And once I realized that and realized uh, that fossil fuels are uh, non-renewable and, and therefore depleting and that uh, burning them is changing the climate, uh, suddenly a lot of things began to fall in place and it became much clearer how and why the limits to growth are very real and are coming to bear on us in, uh, in real time, as they say. Yeah, this was one of the fantastic things when I read The End of Growth, that you start off by describing your energy return on energy invested, which is something I'd never mm -hmm. crashed into before as an idea. And you suddenly go, oh, if we've been running on energy, that you know, oil and coal, that our energy return on energy invested somewhere between 30 to 1 and 20 to 1 for two centuries, then life is a doddle. Right. And you see that really as long as you've got energy that returns to that level, everything's going to be fine. And I love the point you know, when you're describing energy return on energy invested where you describe you know, corn, which is what an energy return on energy invested is, what is it, 1.5 to 1 if you turn corn into ethanol? So you might as well just eat the corn and walk. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, this energy return on investment is a concept that was pioneered by Charles Hall, who was an um, ecologist uh, working back in the 1970s. He's still around, still working on this subject, but uh, he came up with the observation in, in the 1970s when he was working on fish populations. And uh, he, he realized that, you know, uh, a fish needs to obtain more energy from its environment than it expends at getting energy, at getting food. That's pretty obvious, but, you know, once you start to quantify that, then, you know, uh, you can understand fish populations and why some survive and why some don't. But then he started applying it to human beings. And, uh, you know, in agricultural civilizations, we were making an energy profit of, you know, maybe three to one, five to one. And it was that energy profit that enabled us to do all the things that we were doing, whether it was building pyramids or, uh, you know, creating class structures and <laughs> all the things that early agrarian societies were doing. But then, as you say, once we started using fossil fuels, where we had to invest a trivial amount of energy in energy producing activities in order to get this, you know, bounty of energy back then suddenly the sky was the limit and uh, and we could use energy to expand not only agricultural production, but manufacturing, resource extraction. Um, and that is what led to economic growth as we've known it in the last century. And that bout of rapid economic growth happened during a time when the discipline of economics just happened to be being formulated at universities and and so on. And so the, this very pivotal first generation of uh, academic economists living through this period of rapid economic growth normalized it. They, they said to themselves, well, this is how things are. This must be how things are meant to be. And this must be how things are in a normal society. So of course we can expect economic growth to continue basically forever. And that's what gave us modern economic theory, which, you know, is, can be incredibly, uh, you know, highly developed in terms of its, its mathematics and, and its ability to forecast certain things and measure certain things. But, you know, when you really look at it from a biophysical standpoint, 
it's based on absurdities and it really doesn't need, doesn't deserve to be considered a science at all. When you're underpinning is the idea of sort of classical economics idea of substitution, that there will mm-hmm. always be a substitute because we've never hit the limits of anything. And that's your starting point. And then you have great modeling on top. Unfortunately, it ends up looking an awful lot like reification. We're going to make the world look like our theory. And I think it was Alan Greenspan you know, made the point when he retired from uh, whatever your big bank is called in America. That, you know, oh, yeah, the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve. His fun thing to do on yeah. weekends was to come up with new models. You know, Just sit there on the computer and plink away and build new models of how economies should work. I'm like, well, shouldn't you actually go outside and look at how the world works? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My classic example of trying to explain this energy return thing to students, and I might put it in here because you can tell me if I'm getting it right when I explain it to them, is I do the example here in Australia where we now have you know more and more solar panels on top of people's homes, and I'll ask a class of kids, okay, whose home has got solar panels on it? And you know, two-thirds of the class now in Adelaide will go, yes. And I go, okay, where do you think the panels were made? Uh, China, right. What energy do you think they were made with? Uh, don't know. Well, let's look it up. Okay. They were made from burning really dirty coal. Okay. That's relatively cheap energy. Now, how did they get to Australia? Uh, on a big boat, hmm. right? Was that run on uh, relatively affordable marine oil? Okay. Now imagine that you had to make that solar panel using solar or wind energy that has a much lower energy return on energy invested. Now imagine that you needed to move them to Australia on a ship where the fuel was infinitely more expensive or it's much slower to get here so the costs of moving everything is slower. Now imagine that to put them on top of the roof, the steel frame they sit on had to be made using solar or wind energy with a lower energy return rather than being out of a big steel plant running on coal. Now imagine that because our climate is changing Storms are getting worse. There has to be more steel in the support system that holds this up. Now imagine that with all these extra costs, your mum and dad have to go to the bank to borrow money to put the solar up and that we've had our (laughs) next credit crunch. And why would the bank lend your mum and dad money for a solar panel? Is that a fair way to roll it all into one simple (laughs) scare the munchkins answer? (laughs) Yeah, right. Well... I mean, there there are folks in the uh, renewable energy world who would argue that uh, the energy return on investment for solar is pretty good and improving, which is actually true if you take a solar panel in isolation, you know, and just look at the energy that went into manufacturing it and transporting it to where you're going to use it. But... Um, It's more complicated than that because, of course, uh, solar and wind power are uh, intermittent sources of energy. The sun isn't always shining and wind isn't always blowing. So you you need ways of storing the energy. And you have to take the energy return on investment of manufacturing that storage technology into account as well and, and installing it and upgrading the grid and all the rest. And, you know, at the end of the day, actually, I co-wrote a book on all of this a couple of years ago called Our Renewable Future, and you can find it online for free. It's just ourrenewablefuture.org. It's co-authored with David Fridley, who's on the Energy Analysis Program at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory here in California. And our, our conclusion was that, yeah, we, we must and we will transition to renewable sources of energy, But to expect that we'll be able to get the same quantity and quality of energy at the end of the day that we currently enjoy from fossil fuels is probably highly unrealistic. Yeah, the transition period could be decades. Yeah, yeah. And it it creates a huge problem for for the for economic growth in the meantime. How do we how do we continue growing the economy when we transition away from the, the very fuels that enabled growth to happen in the first place? See, we're having a big debate about this here in South Australia at the moment that we're going to get our first solar thermal plant at some point in the next couple of years. But it's connected to one of our most important industrial cities here in South Australia. We need two solar thermal plants, not one. There were two proposals with two slightly different technologies and, of course, government did what they thought was fiscally responsible and only opted for one of the two. 
where uh-huh. in reality this is potentially going to be the city where in future we make steel <laughs> of very high quality that could be used all over Australia and the world. So if we'd thought ahead and invested now in making sure that city had excess energy, you know, solar thermal so it was available 24 hours a day, the potential both environmental and economic win would have been huge. Mm-hmm. We went for the half-sized environmental win but didn't think of the economic necessity of maintaining the ability to be you know, a, an industrial economy 20 years from now. So is this often the problem that's emerging when people talk about renewables? They think on the little scale of doing what they can do for their house but forget actually they need to go and work somewhere and there needs to be energy powering that 24 hours a day. Right. Yeah, that's that's part of the problem. The, another bit of the problem is the fact that uh, renewables uh, produce electricity, which is great. Electricity is you know, very high quality energy. But the problem is that 80% of our energy using infrastructure doesn't use electricity. It, it uses liquid and, and solid and gaseous fuels. I mean, the way uh, most people heat their homes, at least here in North America, is with natural gas or, or methane. Uh, the way people fuel their airplanes and cars and, and ships is with oil and, and, and so on. So that means we it's not just a matter of building a lot of solar panels and wind turbines and even also building a, a bunch of storage facilities, whether it's batteries or uh, pumped water storage or, or something like that. But we also have to rebuild our most of our energy using infrastructure, whether it's the way we heat our homes and offices, the way we transport things, the way we manufacture stuff. Because currently manufacturing depends very largely on high heat processes. And they, we, the way we get that high heat is through burning stuff. We could get it with electricity, but it would be much more expensive and currently we're not doing it, so we'd have to replace all that infrastructure. We have a professor at Adelaide University, an engineering professor called Derek Abbott, and Derek's done a fair bit of work on trying to move to you know, as much of a hydrogen-based economy as possible. And one of Derek's no. big arguments for this is at least you can make use of you know, all the petrol stations out there, you know, to, where you can fill the car up now with petrol, you could fill up with hydrogen. At least it can be moved around in containers and pumped and used in systems in the same way as a portable fuel. Uh, and right. I find his stuff really interesting. And you see that, okay, the Koreans and the Germans seem interested in hydrogen, but most of the rest of the world seems to ignore it. Have you got any understanding of why that doesn't seem to be moving forward? Well, the, the, the process of, of making hydrogen or, or deriving hydrogen from, uh, from water or from other existing fuels is uh, inherently energy efficient. And storing hydrogen is a real problem because, of course, it's the smallest molecule in the, in the universe, so it tends to leak from whatever container you you want to put it in. So that's why a lot of other people ha- are thinking about using different kinds of energy carrier or carriers or media like uh, methanol or even making uh, methane or something like that is, is possible. So, you know, we can make artificial fossil fuels just putting the atoms of hydrogen and carbon together, you know, extract carbon from the atmosphere and put it together with some hydrogen that you've extracted from from seawater. It's the chemistry is, you know, it's, it's all certainly doable. The problem is, again, that it's it's pretty energy efficient to do that. And so you're likely to end up with fuels that will be a lot more expensive than the fuels that we're accustomed to using now. So again, it's the cost goes up. It's not that we can't do it. It's that the cost is such a role. So here in South, oh, here in Australia, uh, CSIRO, our big federal government science organisation, some you know a team there just worked out a way. I think to pull hydrogen out of ammonia in a you know a fuel cell. So yeah, you right. could use ammonia as the liquid fuel, and they're all excited about that because the system worked so well. But yeah, that seemed to be the problem with that too. Is yes, it can work, but are we willing to pay? You know, that price per you know, kilometre driven in our new ammonia-fueled, hydrogen-powered car. <laughs> yeah. Just because it's doable doesn't mean anyone's economically going to want to do it. 
Right. Well, it's the same thing with carbon capture and storage. I mean, there are folks who are inventing machines that will suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And then, you know, theoretically, we could take that carbon and either just store it underground or we could use it for all kinds of useful purposes. We could use it for making better uh, concrete or making better you know, consumer products, you know, uh, make artificial plastics or something with all that extra carbon. It, again, the chemistry works. It, it can be done. But, you know, who's going to pay for that? Now, the assumption, of course, is that if we have a, a high price on carbon, especially if we do that globally, then doing these kinds of things becomes more cost effective. And that's true. Um, but it's you still have overall a a much less efficient energy system you've lowered your energy return on the energy that you're investing in the overall system and therefore things are going to, going to become more expensive maybe in not direct ways but but in indirect ways yeah, so the irony is we could end up still having very advanced technology but we just can't afford to have much of it or use it any more frequently than we need to. Right. Yeah, which yeah, is a really a strange an idea. We, you know, sort of the period before oil and coal, things had stayed pretty, you know, average for a very long time for human development. And it's not that our intellectual ability is going to suffer as a consequence of this, but our economic ability to implement things unless we really see them as valuable and we're willing to use them efficiently. Uh, becomes the huge problem. I think the other two things that jumped out at me in end of growth that really freaked me out initially were <laughs> fertilizer and rare earth elements. Mm. You know, to realize that the two biggest fertilizer producers in the world, the United States and China, now don't export fertilizer without a government permit because it's becoming rare and most food production is highly reliant. Has this got better or worse since you wrote the book? Well, it's, uh, it hasn't gotten any better. We're still highly dependent on ammonia fertilizers uh, globally. And um, even, even though many agricultural scientists point out that this is really a, a really bad way to grow food over the long term, we're treating the soil as essentially an inert medium with which to prop up uh, food plants while we force feed them. Uh, ammonia fertilizer and trace elements and phosphates and things like that. But, you know, it's a, it's a highly unsustainable way of, of growing food. Uh, there's the problem of, of the ammonia fertilizers, which currently we make from fossil fuels. Again, going back to our earlier discussion, we could make ammonia using electricity from solar panels and wind turbines, but it's going to be more expensive fertilizer. And then the the other elements that we need, uh, particularly phosphates, uh, those are mined. And right now, uh, we don't have any recycling programs for agricultural phosphorus of any uh, significant scale. So what happens is we're, we're mining the stuff. It's going into the, uh, the soil and then into the food and then ultimately into wherever our waste goes and and it's not being retrieved. So phosphates are depleting and this is a real problem over the course of this current century. We're going to have problems with phosphate scarcity and uh, and this could have you know profound uh, impacts on global agriculture. Yeah, from an Australian perspective, we have a little island near Australia called Nauru, one <laughs> big uh, pile of bird poo that over That's the last right. century has been mined away so it looks like a lunar landscape. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, well, that's all gone and that was a whole island. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We humans are good at that. You know, we find a resource and then we extract it until it's gone. And, and conventional economic theory, as you said earlier, says that we can always substitute our way out. You know, we... We draw one resource down, but then we find something else to, to replace it that does just as well or better. And sometimes that happens, you know, with the, with the bird poop you were mentioning. Uh, we found a substitute for that, which was industrial, industrially produced ammonia. Mm. 
Um, and so we've had a century or so of that, and it's it's becoming more problematic because the stuff that we use to make ammonia from is itself depleting. So what are we, you know, where's where's the the substitute there? The problem is as we move from one substitute to another, there actually is no guarantee that the substitute we find is going to be uh, superior or even adequate. Yeah. Uh, in comparison to the the stuff that we're depleting, or that we're going to be willing to wear the cost, even if it's good, you know, could right. we afford to pay five times as much for fertilizer? You know, in the developing world, that would be the justification for the kind of you know food wars that people predict will come along with the water wars. You know, during the GFC, when we saw the massive price rises in food uh, in the Middle East and in Africa, and then the drought in the Middle East, and essentially everyone goes, "Oh, the Arab Spring was a social revolution." No, it wasn't. It was the consequence of food prices and lack of rain. When young guys right. move to the city because they can't grow food, they can't eat, and their family send away and go, go find a job, send money home, and it doesn't work, that historically in human societies is the foundation for violence, which is exactly what we got. And, you know, it got sold yeah. to the general populace as a political issue. No, it was fundamentally a food and environment issue that no one wants to look at the underpinnings because the underpinnings are even more frightening mm-hmm. you know, because they become a constant problem, meaning the risk of social violence goes up consistently. Mm. And, of course, to move from the fun thing of fertiliser, the next thing in your book, of course, <laughs> is rare earth elements. Oh, yeah, right. And uh, and more people are cottoning on to that uh, since, I, since I wrote the book. Uh, we use, of course, rare earth elements for all kinds of electronic uh, gadgets and also for wind turbines, things like that. So these, again, are depleting resources that only exist in certain parts of, of the world. China has uh, largely cornered the market on rare earth elements. It's not that they don't exist in other places, but the, they're, they've been cheapest to mine in China, uh, the U.S., from a strategic standpoint, is looking at reopening some of its rare earth mines uh, and will probably do so. But then that's likely to mean more expensive uh, components for electronics. And even then, we still have the problem of uh, depletion. And even if we have more rare earth mines scattered around the world, those mines will be depleting. And this, you know, this stuff is not going to go on forever. At some point, we have to reconsider uh, what we're making these things from. We, when, when we did, uh, David Fridley and I did this book on uh, our renewable future, we tried to imagine you know, how to reform uh, all these different components of society so that they would work just on renewable energy and not on you know, depleting resources. And some things were pretty easy in principle. I mean, in, in actual practice, of course, it would be a huge problem to transition our food and agriculture systems so that they didn't use you know, chemical pesticides and fertilizers and, and so on. It can't, it's already being done on a small scale, but of course, to transition the whole system will require you know, a lot of effort. But when we started looking at consumer electronics, you know, it was really hard to find a, a path to make that industry actually sustainable and to make it run just on renewable energy without fossil fuel inputs and without, you know, depleting uh, mineral resources. The best we could come up with was a scenario in which, you know, you turn 18 and you get your smartphone. And then for the rest of your life, you basically find ways to keep it working. Yeah, you keep upgrading <laughs> it. Right? See, it's like at the moment yeah. I'm looking to replace my laptop. And part of what I've been looking at is not just what one to buy, but where can I send my old one so that everything useful in it is actually properly recycled? Right. And I'm struggling to find any legitimate answer other than, oh, yes, we have a tech recycle bin. And? Where's Where it going? It go? How much are you going to pull out of it? So here in Australia, we've just had our holy crap moment with rare earth elements and we've decided that you know our two rare earth element mines may actually do some value adding, which by Australian standards is a pretty rare thing to do. You know, rare earth elements, mm-hmm. rare thing to do. So we're actually going to go to the point of the step above you know, just a raw material. I think it's called a concentrate and that's considered to be a massive breakthrough. And I'm like, hello? <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, we've got huge yeah. amounts of space. We could be processing this stuff, which is a very dirty job, in the middle of nowhere and providing another source to the entire world of these things relatively safely and securely with high environmental standards. But it keeps coming back to this same thing. If we're willing to bear the cost of producing what we need at the price that it's going to cost to keep having access. It, it seems like there's going to be this post-apocalyptic situation where people are melting down their wedding bands so that they can get platinum and gold out of it to keep their smartphone <laughs> working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, certainly over the course of the next few decades, we're going to face some serious inflection points with regard to all the things we've been talking about, uh, population, food, uh, manufacturing, energy. And uh, for, for young people, as I mentioned earlier, I used to teach uh, at a college, so I was around young people a lot. You know, for young people, realizing all of this is is quite <laughs> scary. <laughs> I mean, they, they get, you know, that climate change means uh, that their lives are going to be lived under a condition of environmental turmoil and probably social turmoil as well. But then you add in all these other dimensions of resource depletion and species extinctions and shrinking economies and so on. And it, it really does start to get scary. But but what I, I always left students with at the end of the course was the uh, sense of opportunity. You know, the, the time when you will be living most of your life is a time when we will, out of necessity, be reinventing just about everything that we're currently doing with food, transportation, manufacturing, the design of systems, how we, how we do just about everything in society. So what an opportunity to, you know, really understand systems and begin to rethink them. Students who, who take that challenge to heart are going to be immensely valuable to their, their communities. Uh, so, you know, you can, you can look at the glasses uh, <laughs> half empty, I guess, or uh, maybe a different kind of glass altogether. Like, I like to describe it to people as we're probably going to have Gary Klein on as a guest in a couple of weeks' time who wrote a really interesting book on insight. And one of the ways to gain insight, he found, is a thing called creative desperation. And ironically, it's the variables don't change, but you have to use them differently. Right. And in the main, that when breakthroughs come out of creative desperation, they're normally the most odd. No one had thought of them for an extended period of time until the pressure got high enough that someone realized there's no way to avoid this and there's also no obvious thing to do. And really, you have to think outside the box. And that once you get one moment of creative desperation – it normally has a really big long-term impact on people's creative ability to do new things in genuinely innovative ways. You know, innovation gets thrown around so much in our society as you know, the big significant word of the day. But we're yeah. really not seeing innovation yet on a big scale because in the main, most of the big systems are coping and coasting on a century ago's energy, a century ago's wealth. It's only when they start to dry up that we're going to see this desperate need for creative desperation mm. and that the better educated people are and the better educated they are as generalists who can see patterns and see things across disciplines, they're going to be the people who are going to see solutions. Yep, couldn't agree more. The complexity of the system makes it really difficult to see patterns. I would argue that there are more people concerned about losing their jobs to robots, which by the sounds of this conversation aren't actually there's an energy to power those robots. Well, or even build them. And this is yeah. the ultimate joke. We think we're going right. to replace all the, the humans with robots, but the reality is a human can run on bread and water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah, it can grow from small to big on a reasonable diet. A robot can't. So whether you can make the robot or not is not the question. The question is can you make the robot at a price point? that makes it a valuable option. Mm. So the irony is this leap towards automation that everyone thinks is inevitable could be derailed by the fact that the rare earth elements to make the robot work are simply so expensive that it's easier to hire a human. And because the cost of transport could go up so much, it's easier to hire a local human. Mm. So the irony of all of this is it could be a return to the local 
which I think is That's one right. of the most interesting ideas. And you know, Richard, I don't know if you, you want to talk about that a little bit. I know there's been a really interesting report from the Post Carbon Institute on the idea that we will have to go back to being far more you know, local for food and for energy and think of our lives in terms of smaller, more self-sustaining communities. Right. Well, the, the, uh, the biggest demographic trends of the last few decades have been globalization and urbanization. Uh, globalization of manufacturing and distribution and urbanization of people, you know, people moving from the countryside to cities. And I think most people assume that those trends are, you know, somehow cut in stone and that they'll continue until uh, everything is globalized and everybody lives in a city. But in fact, you know, trends like that have natural limits. And there are a lot of signs that we're we're approaching those those natural limits. Uh, We've talked about the uh, energy limits to further uh, globalization. Globalization, of course, depends upon uh, global transport and trade, uh, global communications. All of that takes energy. And if we have less energy in the future, we will have less transportation. And we, and globalization is likely to go into reverse. Uh, same thing with urbanization. You know, People move to cities because that's where the resources are. That's where the jobs are. Uh, cities are very exciting places to be. It's uh, it's entirely understandable. But if we're getting more and more of our food and other basic resources uh, in more direct ways, as we will have to do once once we have less energy with which to uh, fuel the machines of extraction and transport, that means, well, basically, to put it simply, we're going to need more people working the land. Uh, instead of you know one percent of the population uh, as full-time farmers, you know it, at the beginning of the 20th century it was more like 60 or 70 percent here in the United States anyway, and uh, the ratio of urban to rural is I think likely to return to that long-term norm, which has enormous implications because what what happened over the course of the 20th century was the growth of the middle class. You know, it was uh, a period of the emancipation of women. It was a period of all kinds of social and uh, economic trends that resulted from having a huge proportion of the population no longer tied to the land and available to move around and work at whatever kind of job, uh, not just manufacturing, but sales and accounting and public relations, and and all of the things that people do now, computer programming, film critics, and (laughs) you name it, the the thousands of occupations that that people work at today. Well, I mean, that's, again, that's an exciting kind of world in which to live, where there are, you know, thousands of different occupations, and we can all specialize in all these things. But at the end of the day, you know, it is it it's really a biophysical question does the society work and if it doesn't it's going to have to it's going to have to reorganize itself at a, in a fundamental way until it does work and that's the fascinating thing with the idea that we may need to move closer to where we can grow or have access to food right and it's not just the question of being near where you grow it you have to work out, okay, this is a world where can we afford to run the cold storage on the apples for the 10 months that they're not in season? Mm-hmm. Or do we need sure. to you know, can or preserve them? So there's all sorts of questions too that the idea that you, know, you have everything all year round fresh changes. But on top of this, we also have you know, wireless technology. So theoretically, you can be out on your little patch with your you know, solar-charged rotary hoe doing your half acre of your little paddock, but with your earbuds in, listening to your lectures for uni, where you're only <laughs> going to take exams at the end of the semester because you've got wireless communication, unlimited access to information, but also the need to generate food locally and at low cost. So the thing with this is we're not talking about a neo-feudalism. We're not talking about humans becoming stupid again. What we're talking about is a strange balance where our minds can be free and have access to nearly anything. 
that wireless communication, again, you will get the iPhone at 18 and keep it alive for 50 years. That will become necessity unless things change dramatically. Your mind will be free, but you will be physically tied to how much energy in terms of food and powering your life you can access. So this is the strangest combination to imagine. I think that's perhaps what's so scary about it is that it's it's not necessarily the reality that we're going to live in is that bad. No. It's the knowledge it's so that different. we will have of what it was in the past as well as the self-awareness that we will have in, in that time that makes it so glim. See, I almost wonder if in what we're seeing in African development now where they, they're totally leaping you know, pointless hardwired infrastructure straight to just cell mm-hmm. towers doing their banking through their mobile phones. We're almost seeing the beginning of you can live in your village but you can still do your banking. Mm. You can live in your village but you can still listen to public radio and learn how to farm more effectively. You can listen to the radio and find out when the big market is on two towns down, knowing which morning you have to start walking the two hours to go and get any of the specialised things you want to buy. There's a model already out there of what this combination of information and effort looks like. This is not something that people aren't coping with now. There are tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of Africans living in something like this already because they can't afford the resources we take for granted. And yet they've got the technology as well. And we're likely not to be able to afford them ourselves uh, very soon. There are, are other sort of silver linings to all this that we're talking about. You know, over the course of the 20th century, uh, people in uh, industrialized countries like the United States and Australia became largely alienated from their local communities and from nature as a result of high-speed uh, transportation and urbanization. So, you know, we started paying attention to newspapers and television and numbers on screens and so on. And we started paying a lot less attention to what was going on in our local ecosystems and our local communities. And guess what? Our local ecosystems and communities started falling apart because, you know, we everything we were doing was, was about, you know, making a short-term profit at the expense of those things. So if we go back to more of a, a local way of organizing society. And if we end up being living closer to the land and producing more of our own food, that could actually be very healthy for us psychologically. You know, we've we've lost a lot in terms of just our happiness as 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 humans living in these big anonymous organizations and cities and having having no connection with the world the real world around us, and that's shown in in studies around the world. That uh, you know there are there are happiness studies and surveys now that take account of you know how how satisfied people are with the lives that they're living, and take a, a country like the United States, which has you know one of the highest GDP levels in in the world. People in the U.S. aren't all that happy actually compared to. People in some place like Costa Rica, which you know they're they're using folks in Costa Rica are using energy at maybe one fifth the rate of North Americans, and yet they're happier. So what's going on there? Well, it's because they have community. It's because they have uh, beautiful surroundings that they're that they're taking care of. So this again, this is an opportunity. Yeah, and I think that this is really important to double down on that the opportunity here for humans to reconnect to things that you know, so Johan Hari's book Lost Connections about the underpinnings of depression. Having to move mm. back onto the land into small communities would undo at least half the causes of depression and anxiety. That's right. I suppose the one other thing I you know, I think really important to add to this is you know, being a security analyst is one of my hats I wear is the terrible implication of the next 50 years too is that our political elites who should have been aware of the limits to growth should have either read the original book or read one of the updates, have had the policy data from good scientific organisations, have done nothing because it would have interrupted their profit stream, are now potentially going to misuse our youth who have to deal with this new world uh, to go fight wars over access to these resources. 
So part of the reason that humans have to be aware of what's going on and prepare for this is to say no to political elites that want to throw away 19 and 20 year olds on taking control of these limited resources. Right. This is the huge other. So, yeah, we see with China's one belt, one road, essentially putting high speed rail lines across the world is the lowest cost means of transport. It's a way of garrisoning a chunk of the world to maintain their economy and spread their model of economic development. It's a good long-term strategy. Now, they might want to do it and other countries might want to buy in, but we need to be very careful what we let happen to us in this transition period, that we don't right. over-militarise, that we don't see it as legitimate to fight over food and water if there's another way. Now, we've already essentially seen the oil war in Iraq that no one wants to call an oil war. We've already essentially seen the lithium war in Afghanistan that no one wants to call a lithium war. <laughs> what will the next one be that we don't give a proper name? We really need populations to call bullshit and say what wars are when they emerge. You know, if people had called Afghanistan a lithium war, at least maybe we could understand why we wasted 14 years of blood and treasure there. Yeah, well, as you say, a lot depends upon uh, general populace understanding what's going on. And uh, that's why it's so important to get the word out about you know these, these issues, because right now, most people really don't understand. They, they listen to the elites who are telling us that economic growth is normal and natural, and if it's not happening, there must be something wrong, and, uh, and there must be someone to blame for it. Um, so the, the path of the elites very often is to find scapegoats for their own incompetence. Yeah. Well, we're at the and, point here uh, in Australia where we've <laughs> had 28 years or 29 years of consistent economic growth. We've got a political elite that are saying it's fabulous, and yet our reserve yeah. bank just reduced interest rates to 1%, mm. which means we're on the verge of recession. Because you only have um, 1% interest rates when you're on yeah. the verge of recession. And that economic right. growth isn't actually representative of what people are experiencing day to day. It's no. GDP right. growth instead of... It's theoretical money, yeah, not lived yeah, or spent. Right. Or, yeah. yeah, and it's high, highly unequal. Uh, since the, uh, the global financial crisis, the investment in investor community, the famous 1% have made out like bandits because the, that's, that's how we solved the, the financial crisis was by uh, lowering interest rates and shoveling trillions of dollars into the, uh, into the investor class. But um, it's it's unclear whether th- those solutions are going to work the next time, and it's and most uh, most economists now are looking worried <laughs> because the signs are pointing toward, of course, an, another uh, recession occurring beginning soon. Yeah. So this is another fascinating thing. If we if we think of this future where we have the access to information, we have wireless technology, but we also need to be closer to the land. It's a fascinating thing to think what happens to the very rich in this environment. Of course yeah. they have the money to spend to buy what they want, but everything will cost so much more. So you know, in that sense it perhaps does look a bit like the feudal period where you know, the elite may live in the thing that looks like the castle and it's big and suave and they eat better and they wear better clothes, but it's disproportionately it costs them an awful lot to have those advantages over the rest of this. Right, and their wealth is largely tied up in in forms that can literally disappear in a second, <laughs> and that's that's worth remembering. <laughs> our our entire financial system is a fiction. You know, we we have created wealth in forms that are that can be wiped out almost instantaneously, as hap- as nearly happened in two thousand eight. Actually, it did happen to. To enormous amount of wealth, I was I was at a conference um, in I think it was September 2008, and just happened to run into a a, a millionaire acquaintance who was checking his his uh, his cell phone, and and he had a really worried look on his face, and he said, oh "My gosh, I just lost forty million dollars. <laughs> where does?" Where did that forty million dollars go? You know, it just evaporated almost instantaneously, and uh, so yeah, we we do have uh, billionaires and mega millionaires in the world today, and 
but much of much of their wealth is in forms that uh, that are unreal, and that unreality is reflected in 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 the ways that that we and not not just create wealth, but the ways that we use wealth and and uh, and manipulate wealth. Yes, the speculative world. wealth has very little value potentially in a world where real things cost so much more. And you have to be much right. more committed to having them, valuing them and maintaining them. Mm. So, you know, land goes back to being potentially the critical thing. Mm. You know, resources. Land and skills. I mean, being a person who is, as you said early, who's a generalist, who has critical, practical skills, knows how to fix things, these are of much more value in the long run than, you know, running up your... Uh, account of bitcoins or whatever, the uh, currency du jour. Mm. Second hand, second hand resources will actually, I'm sure, will become incredibly the valuable. Industry too. will have to become but, amazing, won't it? If you look at Cuba, for instance, in post Fidel Castro kind of era, he basically banned import on cars. So all the cars that are in Cuba are basically pre 1950s mm. or 1950s esque, and the amount of recycling and and resourcefulness is incredible on those cars. They're all still running, mm. or they just they take bits from everywhere. So the people that have kind of junkyards, <laughs> you know, people that are not necessarily well off but have junkyards full of cars and all those kinds of things may end up becoming kind of the lords of the land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could argue. I think that we've we've already made enough stuff, um, made enough gadgets and buildings and uh, and all the rest to last us for the next century or two if we just distribute them properly and take care of them and uh, and st- stop population growth. You know, a lot of the reason that we have to make more stuff all the time. Is just because we're still growing the human population at something like 80 million per year on a net basis, which is, is crazy. Yeah. In more eastern states, though, right? Because the western population growth is, well, it's population decline. Yeah, but that's mm. the thing. Once you've got the belief that your one or two kids will be okay, you don't have more. Mm. And see, this right. is the thing, too, about talking about this, this next era where things change. It's not like we're going to lose all the contraceptive technologies we've developed. Mm, they true. may cost more to use, but the reality is you don't want to have to grow enough food for seven kids mm-hmm. on the family plot. You want to grow enough for two kids mm. and use all the wireless communications and technology to give them a good enough education to do well in this world of skills are still valued, even if you work in a local way. So. In so many ways, the technologies we now have can be used far more productively in this new environment. And in terms of things like cars and stuff, what's clear from the Cuban example is the biggest problem now is manufacturing that makes crap that doesn't last. (laughs) So what we really need is models of things where we go, right, this is going to be the powered mountain bike Mm. But it's totally rebuildable for the next thirty years. And every part, every is component mm. is rebuildable. You know, the most expensive part will be the you know the battery, but mm. every component of it, mm-hmm. someone's building somewhere, and we don't change the model. Mm. You know, so that you yep. could cannibalize another push bike to keep yours going. Mm. You know, so something like you know, in the US with you know F one hundreds and F one fifties, been around a zillion years. Oh, yeah. now getting <laughs> too complicated and too stupid. Will there eventually be? <laughs> A version on an alternate fuel, much simpler. Or, so or that, the, the Californian example would be a Prius, right? Would, <laughs> yeah, like too complex. Right, but right. You know, can you make a version and say, we just make that model? <laughs> because that way you can cannibalize. So part of this is a really healthy reconceptualization of using things rather than consuming things. And that's yep. a very big potential way forward. Yeah, and and that's the way people thought, generally speaking, before the 20th century. I mean, a lot of this aberrant, crazy behavior really started during the 20th century when we had all that cheap fossil fuel. Consumerism, you know, we take it for granted now, the idea of the consumer culture, but it didn't exist prior to the Great Depression. Well, there's there's Uh, all sorts of anthropological arguments that it really only begins at the end of World War II with the first teenagers you know, in the Western yeah. world who suddenly had money and education 
and, and they were worth targeting economically. Right. That's basically how we solved the Great Depression was with World War II and then the post-war economy, which was the, the, the consumer economy, encouraging people to buy more stuff, which was advertising, and then uh, consumer credit, making it easier for people to go into debt to buy stuff that they couldn't afford and didn't need. So those two things, you know, advertising and consumer credit, they've reorganized society in profound ways, but in ways that are completely unsustainable. We can't, you know, we can't afford to do that anymore. Mm. We but, grew into these problems, which means we can grow out of them. Right. So that those marketing expertise were then used to keep that system going. I, I, I've heard you talk about how PR agencies, or I, I believe you me mentioned, diverted attention away from uh, the limits of growth. Oh yeah, the whole right. the whole economic elite just went la 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 mm. la la la. <laughs> Don't want to know. Like growth is scalable exactly. was the was the, the main argument as as far as I'm aware, but I'm, I could be wrong there. You're, yeah. you're the economist, Richard. What what do you think? Is it a is it is it a conspiracy? Like was we keeping the system going just for the sake of the elite or? Well, yeah, I mean, it's in a way, it's human nature. The people who benefit from the system as it is uh, tend to be the people who are uh, most uh, influential and powerful within the system. And therefore, it's not in their interest to question the foundations of the system, the foundations by which the, which the system operates. But that's exactly what we have to do now as we realize that the system is you know, to use the word unsustainable in its current form. It has to be redesigned around the principles that we've been talking about, the circular economy, uh, post-fossil fuel, uh, using less energy, more rural, more local, less, less globalized. All of these things can be done and they can make life better for us as we cooperate and, uh, and, and learn how to do these things together. Uh, but it's not going to happen if we just listen to the, uh, the so-called experts who are running the world currently. We've got to start questioning the received status quo and thinking for ourselves. I think it's almost the best way to get people to think about this is go, okay, look at the growth of the middle class after World War II. Part of the reason that we invested in this system in most of the developed world is because the middle class across the developed world grew and grew and grew until the 1980s. Right. And the middle class in most Western societies has been going into gradual entropy since that point. And at a certain point when the middle class realised the gap between them and the people they were chasing to catch up with is so big, they'll wake up but they need to wake up before then and go... The gains in terms of education, healthcare, all these gains after World War II were amazing. But consumption has been and will continue to be a disaster. So keep the gains of education, healthcare, social sort of inclusion, engagement with difference, but get over the economic delusion of endless consumption and growth is good and normal. So we're keeping right. the best half and saying we need to reform the other half. So you know, we, we're only giving up the worst bit of what we know, not all of what we know. And I think that's a really important thing for listeners to take away. We, we, we don't want to scare the hell out of you here. We just want to scare you out of the bad <laughs> bit. Yeah, I agree. Now, Richard, is there anything you would like to add to what we've talked about? Or would you like to tell us a little bit about the Post Carbon Institute? Oh, I'll say a few words about it. Uh, Post Carbon Institute's a small nonprofit think tank, operates here, well, it's headquartered here in, in the United States on the West Coast. But we have some people in other places. We, it's, as I say, it's small, it's fewer than a dozen people on staff. And we research and publish on all the issues related to stuff we've been talking about energy, the environment, climate change, and so on. And we have a public website called resilience.org. And I would urge your listeners to take a look at resilience.org. It's up, updated on a daily basis with articles that are relevant to, again, everything we've been talking about. And if folks want to read more of stuff that I've written, they can go to richardheinberg.com. 
It's interesting, you know, you know, the word resilience. We've had an episode <laughs> on the idea of anti-fragility, which is uh-huh. an idea Nassim Nicholas Taleb came up with. And, you know, his argument is that resilience means you come out of something as good as you were but no better. And that what we really need to be aiming for is anti-fragility, that we come out of knocks better than we went in having learnt from what went wrong. And I, I really wish I could move the world to the word anti-fragility because that's the point with this. We don't just want to stay where we are. The point of dealing with all of this is to come out of this better than we went in, to recognise our folly and come out of a century of taking advantage of easy access resources, better able to live effectively and happily long term. It it does seem like the opportunity here for human flourishing will be greater. Yeah. Thank you very much, Richard, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Yeah, well, for me too. We would be uh, delighted as well if you could come back on at another stage. And yeah, anytime can... you've got anything you want to talk about, just let us know. It'd be lovely to have you back on. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I'll have another book or report or <laughs> something <laughs> to we'll talk keep about. Our eyes peeled for that. <laughs> And, of course, you can find uh, all of the the links to uh, Richard's website and the Post Carbon Institute all in the episode description. Thank you very much for joining us, Richard. Thank you, David. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Bye. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.